break of day, the dawn is here. Johnny's up and pacing. Compromise or persevere. His mind is racing. Johnny has no guide. Johnny wants to hide. Can he make his mark if he gives up his spark? Johnny can't decide. Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about Tick, Tick, Boom. And to talk about this one, I am joined by, I don't know, someone who I'd say is probably close to now earning the title of musical correspondent because it's the third one he's joined us for. It's John Police. John, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Josh. Uh, so yeah, Tick, Tick, Boom is the uh, newest movie from Netflix and the feature directorial debut from Lin-Manuel Miranda. It is the filmed adaptation of a semi-autobiographical rock monologue from composer and playwright Jonathan Larson. Did I get that right? That's a mouthful, John. Do, do, do you think that's accurate to say? Uh, yes, it is. Okay. Uh, Jonathan Larson is most known for uh, writing the musical Rent, but in the 80s and early 90s, he was just an aspiring playwright, starving artist, living in like a uh, crummy fifth floor walk-up apartment with no heat. Uh, in in lower Manhattan, working at a diner, and it spent the better part of his career trying to get some kind of futuristic rock musical that most people didn't quite understand called Suburbia, trying to get that made. Uh, He uh, later chronicled those experiences he was going through during that time uh, into Tick, Tick, Boom, uh, which also kind of, but the the actual events of Tick, Tick, Boom more kind of like lead him up to the point where he was going to write Rent. Uh, and it was re- and the Tick Tick Boom itself is reconfigured after his untimely death in uh, 1996. And now it has taken the form of this feature film that Netflix put out and Lynn Manuel Miranda decided to tackle because he uh, was someone that was inspired by Jonathan Larson. He was coming of age in this time in the early 90s, right, right around when uh, Rent took off. And uh, I mean, I, I know it sounds like it was, a, it was a mouthful right there that I just in trying to explain that, though, I, I didn't stumble as much as I thought. So I'm actually kind of proud of myself for that. That was probably the, 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 going to be the hardest part of the podcast for me. But uh, John, I it was like a whole thing where I had to like type that out to get my thoughts straight. Cause like, I'm, I'm very new to this world of, uh, I, I don't want to say I'm new to the Broadway world. That makes it seem like I'm in it, but like I'm a, I'm a Broadway novice and I didn't know a lot about this story beforehand, but you're someone who worked in theater some while you were in college and had a lot of firsthand experience with this play. So I guess the first thing I wanted to ask you though, was, you know, as someone that was familiar with this source material a lot and I had a lot of feelings about it. What were your initial thoughts when you saw they were going to try and actually turn this into a movie? Were you pretty skeptical about it based on what your experiences had been with it in the first place? Yeah, I was very nervous. Um, so Larson wrote this as a rock musical, which to my understand, a rock monologue, which to my understanding, he performed mostly solo with like a band. And I believe he maybe had a couple vocalists going with, with him, but like all the videos of this monologue that are like show up on YouTube and such are just him singing a lot of these songs. And so it was kind of like his personal thing. And then it was reworked by, I want to say it was David Auburn. Yeah. David Auburn. How did I press to do that's the top of my head. Um, <laughs> David Auburn who wrote proof into a, it's a three person uh, musical that it was reworked into. So the three actors play Jonathan, they play Susan and then they play Michael. And so they also double a lot of the other characters in the show. Mm. And so it's a very, sparse kind of intimate show a lot about like kind of turning 30 and kind of like what do you want to do with your life and all those types of things and so when you think about the kinds of musicals that have a come out this year between like we're waiting for West Side Story we just had Dear Evan Hansen which we talked a lot about um but even just the past like decade of musicals have been these very big Broadway staples and this is not that this is a very small, very intimate, very personal kind of show. And so I really wasn't sure how they were going to do it. Um, and especially with Lin-Manuel Miranda, who is, I think, in the same way that Rent is, he writes a lot of these shows that have a lot of different characters, a lot of different threads. And so this isn't really his bread and butter either. And, and well, and we, so should, was, we, should, we should also say, yeah. sorry to cut you off, we should also yeah. say, uh, he, he, it's his directorial debut, but he's obviously like most known for you know writing In the Heights and Hamilton and you know wrote a lot of the music for Moana, but... He uh, he did not write this. This was written by Stephen Levinson, someone who most recently wrote Dear Evan Hansen, which John and I talked about, and neither of us thought was a particularly good movie. So it's another interesting kind of ingredient to throw into this like cocktail of things that could possibly go wrong when you decide to make an actual feature film. 
So we can talk about that for a second because in terms of the screenplay, what I will say is this is, I think, the most faithful adaptation of a musical I've ever seen. I don't think he cut anything. The story mm-hmm. is almost identical. The lyrics are identical. At most, there are a couple very small tweaks that I actually think worked quite well. Um, like Green Green Dress is originally a full song, a musical, and it was just kind of like a radio interlude. Um, and Lin-Manuel Miranda said they shot a full number, but it just like took up too much time. But it's very faithful. And so I actually think this is the kind of show or this kind of musical and 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 movie where actually I think directing is a lot more critical than the screenplay itself because so, so many of the ways, yeah, so many of the ways that it succeeds are based on kind of those stylistic choices that um, Lin-Manuel Miranda is making in it. So before I dive into it even more, first of all, I also want to mention that yeah. Andrew Garfield plays uh, Larson and uh, Alexandra Shipp plays uh, his, uh, his girlfriend, Susan, and uh, Vanessa Hudgens plays one of the singers that is helping with the workshop of it. So there's some uh, a few a few recognizable faces here. Uh, another one we'll get to a little later in a just a uh, one sequence that has this like a whole cavalcade of cameos, which we'll also talk about. But uh, you're you're speaking to the directing a little bit, but can you uh, fill the listeners in a little bit on what your firsthand experiences were with the play when you were working in theater? Yeah, so absolutely. So my freshman year of college, I stage managed this that we did mm-hmm. in a in a theater on campus. We, we put it up as a three person show, so we did the full musical. And so, kind of when you're stage managing, you're kind of the person every rehearsal, kind of taking the blocking notes, kind of keeping everything together or coordinating all. Like you actually run the light and sounds when the show is happening. And so I was kind of in every rehearsal for kind of putting this show on. Um, Ten well, years ago, as of February. So when long you're time doing ago. when you're doing this at whatever. Uh, facility you have at school does it kind of look like it does in this movie when they're actually showing the interstitials of him performing tick tick boom itself is it a similar setup to that you know just uh, some people standing around a piano kind of no those are those are the choices you can do some of the staging in the musical does require like the y sequence stuff like that you do have to have a piano on stage because those are kind of like intimate individual person uh individual spotlight moments but yeah. otherwise you can kind of stage it however you want because there are like some some of the dance numbers like um uh um oh my god i'm forgetting the, num- the name um 30 90 or no no more no more oh, was okay, i was okay. right no no more and stuff like that where you don't have the dream sequences of that but you're still kind of like it is basically a kind of choreographed number on stage um but just to go back to that to kind of address the overall thing of it yeah this is a, like i think this is a favorite of like college theater and like like community theater because it's a small show it doesn't take a lot of like as you can see from the like actual monologue portion of the movie it doesn't take a huge amount to put on it's not especially complicated i think the band is like four pieces or something like that and so and really only a few, a few, a few sets in theory if you want to go there with the diner and the apartment and the swimming pool or whatever you know well so, so the swimming pool is not in the musical oh okay. so that so that is a song that uh, the same thing with boho days those are songs that Larson wrote because um, it went through several phases. It was called Boho Days, it was called 3090, and then it was called Tick Tick Boom finally. And I believe those two songs were written by him, but did not end up in the final version that like is the David Auburn version of the musical. And so there are like little tweaks, but again, when you're doing kind of black box theater, you put a, a table out, you put a couple things out, you kind of give the in like the inference of a, of a location, but you're not building a full set to kind of give a diner or something like that. So taking all this into account with all these moving parts, uh, there's obviously plenty of opportunity for like something to go wrong, I'd say. Uh, again, we, we previously just talked about a movie in Dear Evan Hansen that like in theory should have been a more straightforward adaptation that struggled a lot. So uh, what was the biggest, I, I know you like this movie. So why do you think it succeeded so much when it, it's just like, it's so unconventional, this whole enterprise? So I will start off and say that I think this is the best movie musical adaptation I've ever seen. Wow. Um, And I say that not lightly. And I say that for a few reasons. I think the main one is that I think the problem with most movie musical adaptations is that they are designed to take something that was originally intended to be on a proscenium stage on Broadway with a thousand people. And so something that happens in a single plane of vision with everyone on a single like stage, and you're trying to, to make that into a movie. And so what you get is you get these sequences, whether it's Les Mis or whether it's Into the Woods, which are the two that come to mind, although Tom Hooper is a whole other thing, where mm-hmm. you just, 
instead of having everyone on stage together, you have a lot of cuts because you can't actually put them in the same physical space because that doesn't make sense for a movie. And so in a musical, you can kind of have the disbelief of having people on stage together that may not actually like in the real world of the show be physically near each other. And so what happens is you have a lot of things that work so well when you're on a stage, when you have that intimacy with the audience and that just don't work on a movie. You just, you either have the small rooms, you have the like you just can't make that same connection. And so this is one of those things where I actually think a lot of the things that Lin-Manuel Miranda did are things that in Larson's wildest dreams, he would have loved to do. And I think Larson would be absolutely amazed by some of the things that Miranda was able to do with this. If you told Larson that Bernadette Peters and all these incredible like staples of Broadway were singing his Sunday from this, like it's incredible. Mm. But I think, actually what the movie does is it realizes a lot of these fantastical elements that on the stage you just have to imagine and so I actually think by bringing to life all these dreams and all these things and making it so concrete um we should talk about the production design of this movie because it's incredible um the casting it's just it's so well done but I think this is one of the few movie musicals I've seen that I actually think the movie does things that a musical can't. And I think that's really impressive. That's interesting because, I mean, the whole thing is, is somewhat of a meta enterprise anyway, but it's kind of funny that like, in even doing this, they're they're realizing a lot of things that like, uh, like you're saying, like a lot, there's, there's more than a few sequences in this movie where Larson's asking for, you know, several more resources just to put on a workshop and uh here like something that he he wrote that he never even really got close to turning into anything other than something he just performed around new york city it seems like every, every at least on a couple of occasions like gets this treatment it's 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 kind of it's kind of funny to think of in that way again i'm just learning about that i i just saw one of the youtube clips where he performed 3090 and i uh, in like somewhere in 1991, I guess. And I, so I'm, I'm learning more about this. I don't know a whole lot about him. I'm starting, before I watch this, I'm starting to see, you know, critics just say like, oh, well, it's great for Broadway diehards, might not work for anyone else. And I, I was getting really kind of worried about that. I'm like, oh, well, I mean, you know, it'll be an interesting conversation to have with John on the podcast regardless, because we're both going to be coming at that from like kind of the polar opposites, given your level of familiarity with this and my lack thereof. But I think one of the things that most pleasantly surprised me was because I didn't even know, like, I literally knew nothing. I was just like, oh, it's about this guy as a struggling artist and eventually gets to the point where he makes rent. That's, that's all I knew that was somehow kind of about his experiences there. I did not understand the part about of this movie where it was like, oh no, it's like a guy that's like, you know, on the brink of maybe having to give up this dream and is like staring down the barrel of 30. I'm less than a year removed from turning 30 years old myself. Uh, so I, I mean, I, I can't help but think about that a little bit. I am someone personally who I think a lot of people can relate to this, like at some point kind of like, you know, in theory, I made somewhat of a, a decision that at least somewhat resembles the one that uh, his 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 friend makes in the movie when he's like, all right, I'm going to go, uh, Michael makes in the movie. I made a decision that somewhat resembles the one Michael makes in the movie where he left a more creative field to, you know, go take something more white collar. You know, I, I, I never even really gave it the old college try like he did. I just like, I was basically like, did like a three month job search after graduation. I was like, oh, I'm going to law school. But nevertheless, it's like it's like a thing I've had to think about, like, oh, I've had friends with varying levels of success leave journalism and or stick of journalism. And then like, you know, some were like, you did the right thing, bro. And other people like they did well. So I think like just the idea of like, you know, uh, selling out and like chasing your dreams, like that's a very universal one that like a lot of people can relate to. And I thought with everything this movie has going on that we've already kind of touched on all all of these different aspects of Jonathan Larson's story all these different layers that we have going on here uh that ultimately like amount to tick tick amount to tick tick boom amidst all of that like it actually has like you know a real through line that like i think anyone can relate to even if you know nothing about this uh, nothing about the pre-production of this whole entire thing and i think that's like the best thing i can say about it is that it pulls off managing to tell that story throughout all of this and that's satisfying in and of itself and if you can like still take something from all the other stuff going on in here that's just kind of gravy because i think it gets great performances in service of a, a pretty basic story that's trojan horse into this like within this like gargantuan thing if that makes sense yeah um mostly um what i what i will say <sighs> is that i i think a little bit of the story of this movie is just that I think there are a lot of a lot of different threads of how it works, but I think the beauty of it is that I think if you know who all the Broadway stars are, or even like a, par- a 
I don't even know all these faces, but everyone at the the stage, the workshop of his musical, those are all like very famous, like like ages stuff like that. Those are there are a lot of names in there that I've heard, I've since read about that people were talking about, and mm. so you can get all those references. There are a lot of pieces to it, and frankly, there's a lot of pieces of rent in it that you can just see, but you also you don't need those for the the for the movie to work for you. I think right. there's a fundamentally human question of like your dreams versus like your relationships, like the the possibility of like losing someone you love and like kind of the idea of just like growing older and like, what do I want out of life? And so I think there's a lot of things to this that while Larson is a uniquely quirky character, especially as portrayed in this in terms of like his artistry and like kind of the, the musicality, like the, the bohemian and all that stuff. But I do think it's, pr- it's uh, relatable on a lot of different levels. Um, yeah, so I, I want to ask you about Andrew Garfield. He goes like really big with this thing, but at the same time, I found myself thinking like, you know, like I, I could see like how, you know, that this might actually be like a pretty accurate rendering of Jonathan Larson because, you know, I mean, you know, at, at, at some points I was like, oh, oh man, this is like really starting to grate on me. But then another part of me is like, you know, I think this is probably pretty intentional and I, I, I should probably kind of accept what he's going for. What did you think about like him? First of all, uh, Andrew Garfield's just having a really interesting year, I'd say. Uh, before that, he, he did Mainstream, which was like a movie that like just wasn't that good earlier this year that like, you know, uh, had some potential. And then did Eyes of Tammy Faye, which like uh, another big, broad performance, but uh, an entertaining movie nonetheless. And uh, here it's like, you know, he, first of all, he's actually pushing 40 years old. And the large, large part of this movie is about this guy chasing 30. I don't really think that, you know, hinders it at all. But I think it's interesting that he actually... I thought overall, like actually probably captured the spirit of what they were going for with this guy's story so well. Uh, and just like the movie itself, I think there's a lot of ways where like this performance could like kind of go off the rails because he's going for it so big. What did you ultimately think of like how he fit with what this movie seemed to be going for? So I think Garfield's performance on the acting side, we should talk about the singing, but mm-hmm. I think on the acting side, I uh, what he was doing and I mm-hmm. think is what I really liked about it was that yes it's very big but it it was a fully internally consistent performance you had the highs you had the lows he wasn't at a thousand at every moment and you felt like this person who was so engrossed in what he was trying to do and believing what he was doing it felt like it all fit together and if you see a lot of the videos of Larson it, like people talk about like we talked about Bohemian Rhapsody one of the podcast talk about like imitating real life, incredible performance. But I think the other thing about Garfield's performance is that I think the thing about this movie that does so well is I think the casting is just impeccable across the board. And I think everyone feels lived in. The dialogue is really good. It feels like these people are all real people in this world. And part of that is like, this movie does not do the thing that a lot of Hollywood movies do, which is everyone's three times as attractive as like a real person would be. This looks like real people. And like a lot of the things, like everyone kind of is on the right level. And so I felt like part of what makes Garfield's performance work is that you have a lot of other people who not only are kind of like, oh, that's that's John, but also you kind of have everyone's kind of their own, not just their own quirky selves, but it also, the time in which this is happening kind of like the difficulty of like being 1990, being an artist 1990 in New York with, AIDS crisis, everything else going on. It just feels like the intensity of it all makes sense. And so I think Garfield's performance, if it wasn't being met evenly by all these other performances, I don't think it would work, but I do feel like because everyone else kind of understands him, understands where he's coming from, understands his quirks. And I feel like it has a dynamic range to it. I think it really worked for me. One thing I read about after I watched it was, uh, and you mentioned there were a couple of like changes to to the that they might have made for the story for this and i don't know if one that you picked up on but one that i read about was that in that susan in the in the play is actually like trying to just get him to settle down and have a family uh and here that she's actually like you know wanting to like make a life change for her own professional reasons and that seems to kind of put them on a, a different level of footing with respect to each other than they are in the in in the original play or monologue or however you want to say it and I, I thought that was interesting because like, I, I really liked Alexandra Ship in this. And I was wondering if, if that was something you were thinking about with respect to both her performance, but also the effect it has on how we are seeing uh, John throughout the, throughout the whole entire thing. And, the, and so, just, make, just making that choice with her and that ongoing push-pull that they have throughout the movie. So 
I, I, on one hand, I actually felt like the Susan relationship was the most puzzling to me in the movie. I felt mm-hmm. like it worked, but like a little bit less than everything else. And I think a little bit of that is that I think the way it's written in the musical, I was just looking was that it's not about going just for a job, but it's about leaving New York to like go and set off like basically the same impetus, but not just for professional reasons, also for like, I like, I want to get out of New York city. I'm tired of living here. Um, yeah. And so the, I get those dynamics. I think, I think the Susan relationship is really interesting because I think it creates some of the best moments of the musical. And I also think it it's a little odd at times because like, I think of the therapy sequence where I think one, again, one of the places where I think the movie almost works better than the musical is that Caressa and Susan are the same actress on stage. And oh. so you have, and so them merging together, it's just one actress singing it. But you also have the dialogue in between it. And the fact that I don't, I, I could be wrong. I don't recall the line about you're thinking about writing a song about this being in there. It may have been there and just not done well when I did it or just like, <laughs> I just, it was a three-week production. It, uh, it was a decade ago. But the way that works because it's actually a separate thing happening on stage with Vanessa Hudgens at the same time, it kind of builds the thing where not only are you doing the movie thing where you can cut between the, the song in the future and the scene in the present. Uh, but you're also, that actually builds the storytelling where not only is this part of the conclusions you're drawing from it, but actually the fact that that's cut that way is a conclusion in and of itself because that's, that's a very, about who he is. That's a very cutting memorable line in the movie. I, 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 that was one of the things I wrote down. I was like, oh damn, that like actually, uh, that, that one line just like says so much about uh, him, him as a person and also their relationship. And you know the answer to it before he ever says anything because you just watched the song. It's like there is. Well, and you've watched you've watched him the whole entire movie, basically making jingles out of everything throughout his day, looking for any kind of inspiration. Yeah, um, and so there's stuff like that. I still think um, so. Going off of that, I think from the with the Susan John relationship, like I actually think the sequence that works the least is the "Come to Your Senses" sequence, and I think. There are a couple reasons for that, but I think the main one is I actually think that is one of the most canonically theater songs where it's like one person on a stage singing to the audience. And I think when you break that that from one person to two and then have her like on the roof in a dress in front of like the dark, like clouds singing to him, it was, it, it, it I, I feel like that was one of those places where I felt like Lin-Manuel Miranda was like, we can do this. We can put it on the roof and make it fancy. And I was like, just put Susan in front of the audience. Just like, just like cut her in there. And so like, that's all you needed. But again, like that's one of those places where that song works so well, because it's just, it's one actress on stage by herself belting to the audience and just like having that moment. And when you are cutting between two different actresses singing it and you're moving locations and doing all the film stuff, it just doesn't work as well. And so I understood her, but I still think the entire, like the movie hinges on the John Michael relationship much more than it hinges on the John Susan in certain ways. Yeah. And I, I, I yeah, I, I don't disagree with that, but I, I certainly just like thought like, Oh, that I kind of, I kind of liked that. Like, it seemed like she was pretty professionally like, you know, um, Oh, she's a good actress. And, and, yeah, and, or, or no, or, or no, well, she's a dance. Well, I guess she's a dancer, I guess in, in, yeah. in the, in the movie. And I, I like that. I, I at least like how it, she was able to confront him in that way because she was obviously doing it for very good reasons for herself, as opposed to necessarily just like pressuring him to like go move to the suburbs and have a kid right away or something like that. I, I, so I, I appreciated the point when I read that, but I, I agree with you on the Michael thing. Cause that, that kind of gets at what I was uh, speaking to a little bit earlier, as far as like me being really able to like uh, connect to this. Can movie we not, on the left. Sorry. Can we not leave Susan for a second? Um, oh, sorry. Okay. I thought, yeah. I thought you were done. I had, go ahead. Sorry. I have a question for you about that actually, yeah, yeah. which was, did you have any doubt? It, like, was there ever even a little bit of a question of him like leaving New York for her like there was you never even not knowing all this stuff you just never had any thought that that was going to happen oh no no yeah even if I didn't even know that the guy went on to make rent like I could just tell the way he was talking to her like he he was so he was so absorbed in his own thing he never really seemed like he was genuinely going to give her the time of day like it, I it, it, I don't know if the movie was like you know my one of my overall big positive things about the movie is that, like I think it works for someone that really knows nothing about this though I mean uh at the same time like I don't even know if it really I don't know if the movie thought it was really like, I, I don't know if the movie even thought for the novices, like it was actually going to have them in suspense on that point or not. Like I, I, I never really even considered it myself, you know? So I was just yeah. like, I, I thought we were supposed to understand that he was just like leading her on, putting her off and not really and just trying to avoid it. Cause he had no intention of actually like really taking her seriously. 
So I thought there were, I, the thing that struck me, and again, I'm a decade out from doing this musical, so I'd mm-hmm. forgotten a lot of this dialogue, is I actually really like that the, the musical turns it on its head where it's not, I knew you were never going to leave New York, but I at least wanted to like think that you wanted me to stay. And so mm-hmm. that was a really interesting kind of subversion of what you did expectation where the question is not like, are you going to leave New York for me? It's, do you even care if I go? And the answer was like, maybe, but also like, maybe not. And I thought that was actually like, I, I, I thought I like you again, I was just like, there's no way this dude's leaving New York. I also, I also thought he cared, but also that he just took her for granted. So it was like, well, yeah, I, I want her to stay and she's just going to stay because she loves me. And like, I, 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 I just have, I just got to deal with this other stuff right now, but I mean, we'll work that out. She definitely wants to be with me because she loves me and, I just thought he wasn't like paying it much mind because he, he was just like assuming she would just like wait around for him, even if he really shouldn't have taken her for granted in that manner. Yeah. It's a little egocentric because I think at a certain point, his probably mindset is, you know, I'm not leaving New York. So by the fact that you're asking this question, you've made your choice and like do what's best for you. But I, that's the hard part is like, you never buy that he's going to stay and like leave New York for her. And so it brings the whole, like the, beginning is pretty good and I think like the note they end on works pretty well but I do feel like the whole are you going to talk to me are you going to talk to me what's going to happen like that again felt a little bit you don't see enough of them like as like a perfectly happy couple to be that invested in their success though I think it's just as important for what it says about like uh the effect that like his you know single-mindedness was having an obsession was having on the other people in his life though again that's another thing that's also kind of accomplished through the Michael part of the story anyway uh, yeah. as far as that goes, yeah, it was just, uh, with respect to all the Michael stuff, like, I mean, it was incredibly moving for me, even before you got to like the last revelations in that story, just because, you know, I, I, I did kind of feel for him and it's like, when, when, when is it actually time to give up on your dreams? And, uh, you see him like go through really, like really go through it in this, like this whole with, within the span of like, just a, like a handful of scenes, but you kind of understand, uh, someone not giving up on their dreams once you get a, an encouraging voicemail from Stephen Sondheim, you know? So yeah, I, I, I totally got where the push pull that he was like kind of going through throughout all of that, as he even had to kind of like look at Michael, who, I mean, I, I, I'm sure the movie kind of had to like expedite some things there. I don't think you, I don't think you just walk into a corner office making 200 grand uh, if you've been a, if you've been a starving actor, but it gets the point across, you know, were, were there any ways in which the movie handled that, that surprised you that were like, I know you said they actually were really faithful, but was there some way in which they executed that part of their relationship that like really was like a revelation for you based on uh, what you already knew coming in? This is going to sound a little glib, but I think the fact that they didn't make Michael hot made the sh- it work a lot better. Interesting. Because I think, I think there's a ver because the thing about the show that I was, when I watched the second time, this is the thing that kept going through my head is Jonathan thinks the world of Michael. He's like, you, you were the best actor. I care about you so much. Like there is a certain amount of like, this is the person I care about most in the world that happens in the show. And it has to be one of those things where you almost have to see Michael for the way Jonathan sees it. And that explains a lot of like, well, if Michael's going to sell out, then maybe I should sell out. And it's one of these things where it's very, it's a very interesting relationship where like they clearly care so deeply about each other, but also like, I think the fact that you have to understand it through Jonathan's lens and understand how much he cares about him explains a lot of things where like, otherwise you'd kind of be like, was he that good of an actor? And like, do you really care that much? And so at the fact that you have to take Jonathan's word for it, I think makes you buy into not only how much they care about each other and how much he, he cares about him, but how much Michael telling him you have something great. Don't you dare do it. And then also the revelation about him having HIV like leads into the end of the show. I think if he you didn't have that incredibly strong, like that almost like not worship, but they he like deeply care, like probably loves Michael more than like almost well, anyone else's life. Yeah, we see those home videos at the end. So like we're meant to believe that like um this is like probably the most personal part of the whole thing for him. Like I think Michael is actually like really a childhood friend, right? Not just like well, a childhood friend for the purposes of the movie. Well, the show tells us that they met when they were eight and like had a lot of obviously like important moments across the mm-hmm. course of their life together. So I think they've been basically like inseparable for the past 22 years is what it said. 
Right, right. I mean, it's like they call it semi-autobiographical, but I, from watching it, I just kind of took the, like, this is basically like very, very straight from his life, probably, you know? I think that's a, I'm almost positive that's a real person. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, and again, I had forgotten about, like, this is the thing about this kind of movie is that there are little seeds where you don't ever hear about the boyfriend, but they're just broken up. And you don't, you're like, don't know what's going on. And you can kind of see what's going on. And it builds a little bit. And then co- kind of the combination of the revelation with kind of the way the show goes forward, where I thought it was lovely. I really do think that it works. I think that it's not glib. And I think it's especially not glib because I think you kind of, you get a little bit of a lens into the, like the world they're living in where it's like any day you could just like turn up with a death sentence. And so- Well, I'm I sorry, I mean- the, Yeah. Well, maybe I wasn't 100% picking up what you were putting down with respect to like mm-hmm. it working as far as him not being hot. Do you mean as far as like maybe uh, Jonathan kind of idealized him in a way just because he was such a good friend that like he didn't really necessarily say like, oh, well, maybe part of what might have been holding him back as an actor was that he wasn't classically good looking or something like that. And that's not even something that really occurred to Jonathan. No, no. I think what I'm trying to say is that I think if you pick, if you cast a classically attractive actor, like let's say you had Roger, the actor playing Michael, I think if you have someone that we on our own are just like, oh, he must be a good actor, stuff like that. You kind of, you would like, I don't, I don't think, I think the arguments only work when you understand all the feelings that Jonathan has about Michael quitting being an actor and selling out as through the lens of this is the greatest person I've ever met. And this is when I, in, like I care about and you need Jonathan's perspective to feel that way. I think it, it roots a lot of the other things through his perspective in a way that I think if we came into him with our own interpretations, I think it would be a lot harder to relate to. And so I think we would come and be like, Oh, he must be a great actor. Oh, that's so sad. And like, mm-hmm. you're, you kind of go and you're like, was he a good actor? Are we sure? Like, are we sure that's what's happening here? And he kind of, he does say it. He was like, I was a mediocre actor. Like there's plenty of those in New York, but it does kind of like, I think that the why and louder than words segments could be very easily overwrought if you didn't fully care about that relationship. Mm-hmm. And so I think you really need that, the devastation of him selling out to be sold in because it's like the greatest betrayal he's ever dealt with, but also that then leads into understanding just how deep this relationship is. Like, and, 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 does that and, make and, any sense at yeah, all? Yeah, and how Michael would react to like John saying he wants to sell out. Yes. So I think there's that where like, like if Michael's almost like, really? You th- <laughs> you're going to sell out because I sold out? I was bad at this. <laughs> like, don't do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like, I actually think uh, Robin DeJesus does an incredible job. I think he's like, I think he's really good. But I also think that that role has to be interpreted like I think Susan needs agency because I think if you only saw Susan through Jonathan's lens I think she would be like a non-entity but I think that the micro relationship actually kind of depends on understanding how great Jonathan thinks Michael is and how much he cares about this person like in a world where he really doesn't care about Susan as much as he probably should and like is a little bit flighty with everyone else like this is the one person he's like deeply invested in. Yeah, no, it, it, it totally makes sense. And it's definitely the most uh, moving part of the movie. And I, I, you know, they had a, they, they have a very vicious fight in, in, I guess the movie and in the play, I suppose. And I, I sometimes like, you know, maybe in movies or shows like characters love a fight and uh, hell, I, 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 I could think of a really good example and just like uh, what's going on between the Mark Duplass and Jennifer Aniston characters on the season of the morning show that just aired sometimes, uh, which is just terrible in the second half of the season. I mean, but regardless, I, I stuck with it. And like th- those characters have a big fight and then like, they're kind of like happy. They're kind of like chill all of a sudden, like two scenes later. And it's like, I don't really think you guys earned that. And here, like, I, I actually kind of like understood, like, I, I I felt their relationship enough that I kind of got that they would have like kind of been able to put that past them as quickly as they do within the context of this movie, because I just think that relationship is like, is, is put on screen in such a way that I, I, I fully bought it, you know, and that, and that's no. probably the most important thing to making this whole movie work. Yeah. And I think there's also kind of a depth there of just like, yes, we fought, but like you are, you are my person and like, I will be there no matter what. And I think that's, I almost think there's a really interesting like comparison between the relationship with Susan and the relationship with Michael, where like Michael is able to put it behind him and be like, I'm going to come to the, the reading and Susan's like, I can't do it. 
and like obviously one's romantic and one's platonic but like I do think it says something about like the depth of like caring there in terms of like how how deep that runs if that makes sense yeah no it makes sense I I'm curious like I mean we mentioned the revelation of Michael having HIV so I've never seen Rent. I know it's it's set against the backdrop of the AIDS crisis also. And so you can just kind of tell the events of this are, you know, part of what inspired that part of that story somewhat. But it's something that Larson was living, I'm sure. And they make that clear throughout here that like they're just really aware of people that are like within their orbit in their community or are being affected by this. Uh, did they handle that in such a way that like that makes sense as far as the kind of backdrop you understand that they would have they, they would have had to their lives at that point. And did they, did they just, did they handle that with the, the sensitivity it deserved, but also give it like the attention it deserved without like, in your opinion, allowing it to like kind of crowd out the other parts of this movie? Yeah, I thought it was done really well. Um, mm-hmm. I think that a little bit of that is the way that the Freddy stuff has happened, ha- like brought in earlier where it's, you kind of have like, you have a discussion at the party and they talk about, oh, how are you doing? And he's like, oh, my T-cells are doing well. And like, it's almost just kind of like a part of life where it's like, I just die at any moment. And like, it, I think they're like, I'm gonna make a COVID point here and bear with me, but I think there's something really interesting about this starting pre-COVID, but like us now living in a time when it's like, there's just like a virus out there that like could kill anyone you care about. And like, especially in this time where it's just like, I mean, 1990 is a little bit less terrible because I think the first inhibitors came out the year or two after that. And so like, cause I think like, it's not like, they didn't know that at the time. I don't think it was much of a death sentence as it was in like the eighties, but they didn't know that. And so you get HIV and it's just like, it's a win, not if like, it's how long can I, can I make it through this? But like, there's no guarantee. And so. Yeah. Magic Johnson was the exception and not the rule. But even Magic Johnson, I think, was 90, wasn't it? 92? Because he went to the, didn't he go to the Olympics? Yeah, yeah. I think he still played on the Dream Team, even though, like, uh, yeah. he like, kind of came back for it and stuff. But yeah, like, as I'm saying, is like, yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was like a very, he, he was lucky that he got it when he did and it wasn't the death sentence for him that it could have been. You know? Yeah. No, saying. absolutely. And I think, again, this is the one of the things that a movie does better than the musical is I think the I, I'm HIV positive line is, hard to do well on stage I think you can do it but like I think a a, a stage audience kind of knows what they expect but I also think that like helps to see a close-up of a face when I mean, someone says something like that right well it's also a quiet line it's not mm-hmm. like a it, like right. it's it's like it's said with some force but it's not like shouted and so I think there's something like I cried <laughs> I cried um because like it's just finding out the person you care about most in the world is gonna die like that's what that's what it, anyone at that time would have thought and so it's so devastating. And like, especially when you, when you can tell what's happening, you can, you don't need to, the movie doesn't need to tell us what happened with his partner and why they suddenly broke up. You can guess, you, like you can guess why he, he's decided to take this. Cause he, like, you can tell all the things that are happening here, all the times he was trying to talk to Michael, like to John and couldn't, and you can, you can see all the threads and they're not overstated but they're there. And that's a very hard thing to do because it's hard to foreshadow it on a movie without making it so blatant that like, it's just like warning, warning, warning. And I- Yeah, it caught me off guard. Yeah. As someone that didn't know the story for sure. Um, I mean, I knew the story and I, I like, again, I, it was a decade ago. Yeah. I Like it just got out of my head. I, I remembered much more about the John and Susan relationship than the, um, the Michael, that one line. And so kicks you. And like, I think that- this is done, like, I think the thing about Rent, and I think the thing about, like, this is the thing that Lin-Manuel Miranda probably understands about, like, his works, where you have In the Heights, that's a much more intimate kind of, obviously a big show, but is a much more personal, much more intimate thing than Hamilton is, is that Rent is just, to be a musical, the size of Rent and the prominence of Rent, there are a lot of tropes in that, that, like, frankly, he created in certain ways, but like have been carried through. Spring Awakening did them, like Wicked does. There are a lot of these musicals that have like then taken pieces of it and kept it going. And so something like this, which is much smaller, much different, I think is able to surprise and kind of play on it in a way. And so my my overall point is just that I think that was handled very delicately. I think it wasn't overdone. I thought it was very well done. And frankly, it was one of, this is one of those shows where like they couldn't know this, but I feel like it actually 
has a lot of emotions that I do feel like people can relate to just in general. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the point about you made about COVID is a pretty instructive one. I mean, I was just, I was impressed how they, you know, and I looked it up. They, they so they started filming this in March, 2020. And I guess, yeah. it, it, according to Wikipedia, it gave up in April, 2020. I'm surprised like it, like they even kept going for that long. And then they had to pick it up again in October, 2020. Uh, but like, you know, like you said about the Freddy character, I think they did a good job without like, you know, beating us over the head with it, but still like, you know, packing the punch where they needed to about how this, it was, it was just a fact of life at the time. And it's, it's kind of the way COVID might just be for us for like, you know, the foreseeable future too. And that's just the thing about this show just in general is that these feel like real people. They don't feel like caricatures. They don't feel like archetypes. And so even like Vanessa Hudgens character, which like she's, again, she's like an actress, but she's like a very good actress, but she also has scenes where she's like at the party. They're like, you can tell these are lived in people in a way that like, I feel like musicals often fail at. I think musicals are often, like, cause the thing about musical is you have to sing to the back of the house. So you have to do a big enough performance. The people who paid $300, a thousand seats back can tell what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And so movies obviously have to be a lot more understated. I felt like all these people just were deeply understood. And I felt like every single one of them, like you see that party, every single person there. Can we talk about, is his name Simon? The finance bro who shows up and is just like, I want to get artist drugs and then comes back at the end and is in the Tick, Tick, Boom audience. And I crack up every time uh, they show him in the audience there. I miss him on the back end, but like, I, 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 I was, it was so, it was so hilarious the first time he was at the party. I think he liked artist drugs, but I, I didn't even know, if, I actually thought there was like a little more to him than that. And that he was just like, he was actually just, I actually kind of thought, oh, this guy's just kind of fascinated by the crowd too at some point. I don't think, I got the vibe he wasn't just there for the drugs, but he also knew like he didn't present as someone that could just like easily just like fit in that scene. Uh, nope. So I guess, and that does jive with him like actually in theory going to the show. They're like, they they put a bunch of faces in that crowd too. But like that, it was so hilarious when he like didn't really know how to talk to them at the same time, but she actually genuinely happy to be there. Like I, 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 don't, I totally got a big kick out of him. I feel like the thing musicals often do, which is just like, we're going to break into song now. And like, this is a singing. And because they actually kept the structure of the rock monologue kind of thing going throughout, even though you don't know where it's going for the beginning, but it kind of avoids the trope of like, well, I, we were talking and now I'm singing to you. Like, I don't think at any point in this movie, or like, I guess there's the, except for the dream sequences, so you have the no more sequence, which is like a heightened kind of fantasy thing. And then you have a little bit of the um, the Sunday sequence. But for the most part, the songs are either him singing about things going on, like from the monologue perspective, or they are like him by himself singing about what's going on. But like, there's they don't, it doesn't do the same trope where it's like, these are people talking and now we're singing. And I think it's actually really interesting in that I think that makes it a lot more grounded in a way that I think musicals, because they heighten by having people sing to each other, makes it a little bit more... Uh, for lack of a better word, theatrical. That's a really good point. And I'm glad you said it because, again, I enjoyed the movie a lot, but I'm not generally a big musical guy. That might be part of why in some ways is that like I, I don't feel as grounded as I should because of the because of the way those kind of sung through musicals uh, largely sometimes work. Or, or I, I shouldn't even say totally sung through, but just the way in which people do sometimes break out into songs and some of that in those kind of other musicals is something that often sometimes disengages me. So I, yep. I like that point because, you know, if you, if you, if you said, Oh, there's going to be a musical that comes out this year that you're really going to like, and try then try to explain tick, tick, boom to me, I would have been like, are you crazy? Uh, so, you know, there had to, there had to have been some reasons why it actually worked for me. And you might've just pinpointed one of them before we back up and touch on uh, just some of the other actual musical sequences and how we thought we did them. I want to ask you about having someone as uh, recognizable as Bradley Whitford play Stephen Sondheim. Uh, when, I loved it. I loved okay, it so much. I, I was going to ask you about that because, like, you know, like just he's way more recognizable than just like a lot of the theater actors that pop up in this that a lot of Broadway diehards might know. Uh, but Stephen Sondheim is a name that like even casuals will know, and so maybe it's something where it's like, oh, you you want to get someone that's like you know has the acting chops of Bradley Whitford to play someone that's like larger than life like that, but at the same time you maybe could have also just found a theater actor that could have like, you know, done a reasonable facsimile of that. So uh, is it, so it wasn't distracting to you in a way to have someone that's like as well-known as Bradley Whitford uh, playing someone that's as well-known as Stephen Sondheim in a movie that like doesn't have like that many recognizable film and television actors in it necessarily. So I think that the first thing is that I don't think this is meant to be a like one-to-one. This is just an, like in the same way that like 
Andrew Garfield's giving a, like a heightened performance of Larson. Although like, I'm sure he was like a quirky person, but like, obviously it's a movie. Mm-hmm. I think Bradley Whitford actually is giving a, a, it's so funny. Like the workshop sequences, like I, I haven't laughed so hard in so long. Oh, oh my oh, God. Oh, when the actual guy at the workshop's trying to like bro out with Steven Sondheim about how like he's there. They, we, we just, we had the same thoughts on everything. Oh, who I, I looked up who plays this guy. Who was it? It's um, um, Richard Kind plays the uh, oh, plays yeah, yeah. <laughs> Walter Bloom, who is the like main head of the workshop. And then Sondheim is the other guy. And literally Richard Kind keeps being like, well, I don't know. Is this a Broadway? Is this rock? And Sondheim's like, no, it's great. And then he keeps like, oh, okay, that's what I actually mean. And it's the funniest stuff because mm-hmm. the other thing to remember about this show is that like the thing about Sondheim is he hasn't produced a good musical in 30 years at this point. The last really good one was Assassins. And that's 91, 90. Um, but at this point, he just had something Park with George's 84. I believe that before that, uh, right before this, there was, oh God, my timeline is getting blurry in my head. Um, he went into the woods was 87. So he like when they're doing these workshops, he just had into the woods like premiere on Broadway. And so a lot of he's like hitting getting the hits, but also like Sondheim's not an especially like recognizable person. Like I'll give the perfect example is that um, like at Harvard where I went to undergrad, they would do a learning from performers thing where they would just have artists come and like talk to us about shows. And I produced a Sondheim show company at one point. And the guy was like, yes, Sondheim went here. No, he's not coming. He doesn't want to talk to any of you. And I was like, okay. Like Sondheim's kind of a recluse in a lot of ways. He's not that interested in like talking to everyone and like being friendly and all that kind of stuff. And so- you know, It's funny that you say that. Had... I was just gonna say, it's funny you say that because the guy that played- uh... The guy that played Michael was in the movie Camp. Have you seen Camp? I have not. Oh, wow. I mean, I don't even know if it's actually that well-reviewed, but for someone that, like, I just saw it because I love Anna Kendrick, but and she's in it. It was, like, the first thing she had done, but, like, Sondheim has, a like, a, a reasonably large cameo in that, and it's, like, I don't think it's a particularly, like, like well-received movie, if I recall, and it's just, like, why did Sondheim show up for that if he's a recluse? I don't know. Uh, but, I think he's uh, more of, like, I'm going to do what I want to do and nothing else. Right. And so I think the thing about it is like, yes, if you pulled a thousand people and said, do you know who Stephen Sondheim is? They pro- a, lot, a lot of them would probably say yes, like honestly. If you gave them five photos of old white guys with beards and asked who's Leonard Bernstein versus who's Stephen Sondheim, would any of them be able to tell you that? Um, and so I think in this case, I think like having someone with like, we haven't th- too much about that. This movie's funny. There's a lot of jokes in this. There's a lot of like little beats. There's a lot of like little humor things. There's a like you laugh a lot during this movie, and I feel like like Bradley Whitford having someone with those chops to be able to do those little like beats and those little things is really important. He's not in the movie a lot, but he's great when he's in it. And I also like that you know, well, as I was watching it, I didn't know if you. Oh, I I, I know who Sondheim is. I didn't know if his involvement in this was just like a creation for the sake of the movie or the play. Uh, and so I, I actually looked up after. It's like, oh no, he actually like did kind of stay in touch with Larson in real life throughout like much of his time leading up to like right up until, you know, I guess rent. And I, so it was kind of cool to like, assuming this stuff was like fairly accurate as to like how he, I don't know. I don't know if Sondheim did show up to these readings of his thing. It's, it sounds like their paths might've crossed initially somewhere else, but you know, it was cool to see him like, you know, be that perceptive about like Jonathan's talent, even if it seemed like just about everyone except Jonathan understood that suburbia wasn't really going to ever be a thing. Uh, so it was kind of cool that like to have Whitford at least like being uh, on his wavelength to some extent in recognizing some level of talent there. And I enjoyed those moments in the movie is what I would say. No, absolutely. And I think the thing about this, the thing that's interesting about this just as a movie is that First of all, this is the kind of musical that if Larson had not died young would probably never be made because they would have done 10 more musicals. And so like there was a little bit right. of like the reason these things get these, the reason these things get dragged up is that it's the only other things he really created. And like this did go off Broadway for a little bit and stuff like that. But um, the other thing about it is that the Tick Tick Boom monologue, I believe, is also like was a big part of actually why Rent happened is that I believe that like at the, at this monologue, he like met some people and like there was some interest in producing it. Like the thing about all these things is that on one hand, this show wouldn't exist without Rent, but on the other hand, Rent exists because of this show. And so it's a really interesting kind of like, it's almost like you're capturing a moment in time, but you're only capturing it because you know what happens next. And it's a really interesting kind of like piece of art just in terms of like 
how many rock monologues are there probably from the early nineties of people who didn't write rent? <laughs> I'm sure there are quite a few. <laughs> yeah. What about, what, what about, were, were there any other, like you talked about, I mean, I know you said you wanted to talk about some about the production design, but did you have any other feelings should about we, whether, sorry, we should talk about Garfield singing. We should talk about Garfield singing. Yeah. We touched on that a little bit earlier. And I guess my thing on that was from what I could gather, you know, Larson is himself was more of a, um, was more of a, you know, a composer and a writer, but like could perform. Uh, so, you know, even if Garfield doesn't exactly have like, you know, a, a singing voice of someone that was ever going to just like actually like do a musical on Broadway, I'm guessing that's fine because of, you know, that's, that wasn't Larson's thing either. And it kind of works because he just throws himself into it so much. Yeah. I thought this was like kind of one of those perfect places to put an actor who's not like canonically a singer, because the thing with composers, especially is that they usually have a really great ear, but they may not have the voice for it. So they can give you the pitch and they can sing it, but like, it's not going to be the best thing you've ever heard. And I thought like having someone who wasn't like, if you put a full, like, like a full Broadway performer in this role, I don't think, I think it would almost be a little weird to have someone singing that well as like Jonathan Larson. And I was a little confused. A lot of the reviews that I read were like, well, Garfield's not up to singing this. And so it doesn't work. And I was just like, I feel like that just misunderstood the movie. I think that like, I actually thought that having someone, especially when you have him and then Vanessa Hudgens singing a duet, it like, it almost like, I thought it worked to have him be like the second fiddle there. Cause that's like, that is what it would have been. All right. Yeah, I I, I, t- I totally agree. And I, I think, again, I think it was purposeful that at points in the movie, Jonathan's kind of grating on you some, maybe just because it's like, he's manic for those eight days or whatever that of the movie, because he's being, he's just so in his own, so in his own world. At the same time, it's like, all right, I get it. It's, it's going big with the performance, but though, I don't know, it's, it's weird. If you told me going into this, you would have enjoyed him as the a singer as much as you would an actor. I would have thought that was a little odd, but I, for the reasons we just discussed, I, I know. I, I, I really, I, I really think it works. Um, you know, I, I, I guess that's a good jumping off point though, to ask you about like the performances themselves. I, um, or excuse me, the, the, the musical performances themselves. I don't know exactly what it would have been when you worked on it in college, but this is obviously uh, it's a, it's own level of production. Yeah. And I, I, I'm wondering how cool was it for you to actually like see these songs actually like put on in this way and did it live up to the expectations you had for it musically? Mostly the, I will say, and this is a very nitpicky thing, but the balance was a little weird. I, I listened to it. I watched it both on my TV and I watched it like in a, a theater, like in my building. And like, I felt like the music was louder than the voices and like, it was a little bit off, but like overall, this is one of those things where like, a show like this, you have that one recording of like the one off Broadway cast from like 98 that you've just listened to a thousand times. And so I thought it was really fun. And I also thought just like having more actors involved. Well, I, yeah, I, I forgot when I, when I asked you that question, I forgot. Yeah. Like I hadn't mentioned earlier, this, this did, it never made it to Broadway, but it got performed in like, I was reading about it, I guess off, off Broadway a lot and like on the West End and stuff. So there have been other versions of this out there, I suppose. Yeah, I believe the Auburn version that he reworked has been performed several times mm-hmm. off Broadway is my right, impression. Right. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's only a three person cast. And so what I would, yeah. So there was a one off Broadway and there's several others that have kind of, it's gone, done us. Like the thing about this show is it's too small to ever be on Broadway. You would never do a three person show like this on Broadway. It just doesn't make sense. But if you can, you can do this kind of small thing off Broadway and have people go to it. Um, it'd be like well-regarded, especially when it is like the other Larson thing, which I will say, it is always interesting to me, and I, I hadn't thought about this in a while. I do wonder if we'll ever see Superbia put somewhere. I was always going to ask you that. It's like, if, if it hasn't already happened, if they're like, how big rent was, would it ever happen? Yeah, but you have to imagine that the number of people who have ever heard or thought about Tick, Tick, Boom before this was on Netflix versus after is a thousandfold. And so, like, just the number of articles of being like, is Stephen Sondheim a real person that we've texted back and forth? Um, I, well, I mean, I, I'd seen that one other place, I think, before before you sent it to me. And I was just like, is this like an onion type of website? I never heard of this website, though. I suppose someone could like have generally just been that ignorant and just watch something just because it was on Netflix. Yeah. But I do think that it's an interesting thing where like, especially with an artist like this, where there are so few things, the only thing I would guess is that the thing about this is at least this went through a full like 
several rounds of workshops. He obviously titled it like three different things. He eventually did perform it as a rock monologue in a final form. And what I would guess is that after he did this workshop, he never touched the Superbia script again. And so whether it's actually in the form that it could ever be staged, I don't know. Or if it, I wonder if it exists somewhere, like who has a copy of it, you know? I feel like Jonathan Larson was probably a bit of a hoarder of his own artistic <laughs> things. Um, yeah. If I'm going to project a little bit there. And so I would guess it does exist somewhere. I'd be curious if someone does look into it because the only thing I would guess is it might be like one of those things where maybe like, I will say those songs were catchy. I hadn't really, I hadn't really heard those songs. And so I was like, oh, this is like, I don't know what the hell the face awards are. I don't know what's happening, but these songs are like kind of bouncy and like really interesting. And so I could see someone doing like a, like Les Mis every like 10 years does like these concerts. I could see someone doing like a concert of it or something like that. Yeah, it got it got Sondheim's attention. It, in theory, it should be of quality enough to like, you know, get out in the world in some other form. Um, uh, anything else we didn't touch on yet? I know you want to speak to the production design a little bit. What, what, what jumped, what popped for you in that regard? I loved the spaces everything happened in, especially the apartment where it was, e- even if you're a little generous, where it probably was a little bigger than like a, a New York, like cheap, cheap ass apartment in 1990. The fact that it was worn down, the fact that like a lot of the, apparently the stuff in the apartments were real Larson, like, like things he actually owned. They like oh. got a lot of stuff from his family and stuff like that. And so I think they recreate a lot of those things. Apparently the moon, the moon dance diner is like a real place that shut down a decade ago and they completely rebuilt that. There was a lot of like very small little things that showed a lot of care and that I thought were like really well constructed because like if you did the friends thing where you're like, yeah, we're all struggling in New York. We also have a 5,000 square foot apartment. People would have been skeptical and like, obviously it's hard to shoot in a space that small, but like there are a lot of l- lyrics to go with it. And I felt like, again, it felt lived in. It felt like a real place. It felt like it had real struggles. And like, not only that, you had the little nods to like calling, like call, throwing the keys down because the, there is no buzzer, which is like a whole rent plot. Like there are a lot of things that like, obviously he, he took from this and like took from his real life to write rent. But I just felt like they created like all the little things were really like a fully realized world. And even like Garfield's hair, which was, hilarious was also just like felt very fitting and looks like larson like a lot of critics like uh joanna robinson who i adore was tweeting like pictures of garfield and this and jonathan larson and being like they look the same like i see it i'm just like it it was just really well done and so i like i feel like with musicals you spend so much time either on cgi or like bigs like but like effects and i felt like this was one of those things where they just did the care to really do those important spaces really well yeah, I don't, the, I, well, one, I didn't, I hadn't heard that about having to recreate the diner in that way. I assume maybe they just like, you know, just put a different sign on a diner that was already there. So uh, that's it's apparently a very famous diner. Apparently it was open for like eight decades and was like a very famous thing for like a lot of different artists worked there, but it closed in like 07 and now is like in Wyoming or something like that as a tourist attraction. I don't really understand what happened there, huh. but they had to completely rebuild. Yeah, I, I think it got turned into apartments. <laughs> the lot did, but well, they, yeah. but they, they had to completely rebuild it. And I, yeah, I, I just want, I, so yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I know. And I, I, I also wanted to second what you said about the, the, the apartment and that like, I mean, the friends thing is obviously a, a fun example that people like to put right deservedly make fun of with respect to the way people live in New York city in, uh, in movies and television. But, you know, I think it takes a, it probably takes a lot of care to recreate something, an actual, it's probably a lot easier also to just put them in something like they are in Friends as opposed to like actually having to put in the time and attention to detail to recreate a dingy Manhattan apartment where it's like, man, what what, what does something look like that this guy could actually afford to live in in Manhattan? You know, because uh, we're, we're led to believe like he doesn't really have a lot of money coming in. And, my, and, my, and Michael didn't either, obviously, until he, until he took that job and understandably wants to get out when he could apparently afford to live in like the, the dopest apartment on the Upper East Side. Because I mean, yeah, and this is a different time in real estate in 2021 than it was in 1991. But still, like, you know, I sometimes I even see stuff that's supposed to like not look as nice and it might not look as nice as the friends thing. But I'm like, look, that's still Manhattan. That's still a lot of space. Like that's going to cost more money. And like it, it, this one did feel about as crappy as they were trying to make it sound and probably looked as uncomfortable as they were trying to make it sound when they kept mentioning like the heater and stuff like that. And so the other thing about it, and this is like, 
I think a something that Lynn manuel Miranda should be applauded for is the fact that that's also a very hard space to A, shoot in, and B, direct, because my guess is they had to build several different sets to, like, comprise it. And they also probably had to do a lot of, like, there's just a lot of, like, care to make sure it actually feels like a cohesive space. But, like, I don't know if you could fit a camera with all those people in there. And so, like, how do you even shoot that? And, like, that's the thing I've... I've seen over and over again, the reason these sets are always larger than apartments would be is that it's so hard to actually like shoot people in a right. realistic apartment space. Yeah, definitely. I, I honestly can't think of any anything, any recent shows that have really done a really good job of that with like New York City apartments besides like, you know, Broad City. Like I think they did an even better job than, than girls did. Like girls, I mean, they, they weren't like- Girls, those apartments were huge. Yeah, they, were, they, they weren't, they weren't furnished in like the fanciest way, but they were really, really spacious for what those characters- should have been able to afford yeah. uh i think i think broad city probably got it close to getting it right but i i was impressed with how they how they recreated this one uh any of the other is there any other musical stuff that you want to touch on because again like i agree with you that the suburbia songs are really catchy but i just don't really know enough about to break the rest of this down did you have feelings on the sunday on the sunday sequence as far as like you know were all the cameos too distracting to you or did you like just being the Leonardo DiCaprio and once upon a, t- upon a time on Hollywood meme, just like pointing people out. Like, what did you get out of that? Was it overboard? Were you like, Oh, this is fine. What was your reaction to that? Oh, I thought that was very fun. Also just yeah. cause like, again, I don't, I don't live in New York. I live in Boston. So like there were a lot of actors from like um, the guy who was kind of being a dick about like his name being Richard and his last name being with a C and all that stuff. He was in like Hades town. There were a lot of people from like, there were obviously actors from, Hamilton in there uh, like obviously the centerpiece is Bernadette uh, Peters doing like the dot move with um, Andrew Garfield do you, do you recognize that one where they're doing the hand in the center that's from Sunday the Park with George um, and Bernadette Peters originated that role oh. um, so she's the original dot but there were a lot of other just like uh, again you just google like there are like 20 names on here but I thought that was like I thought it was very fun not only on the level of like that's a real sequence and being able to like basically have it be in a movie what you could never do on stage where you have all these Broadway legends all in one place for five set five minutes but also kind of the way it plays with like the fantasy aspects of what could be versus what is and like the kind of things you can only do in a movie and so I thought it, it was really successful um I will say some of the lyrics in this show are like a little juvenile and like the more you think about it they're kind of like like the boss is right is wrong as rain and you're just kind of like okay but like I'll take it <laughs> Yeah, I, I, man, and there were there were a couple, there were like a couple other quotes that I thought I, that I thought I wrote down and then I just lost. But I, there, yeah, there, okay. there, there, no, I know, but there, 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 there were a few other things I wanted to like shout out with the dialogue, and and I, I, I don't know where I put my notes, but you know, I, I, I agree there were like, and you also mentioned earlier how it was like legitimately funny, and I, I, I do think there were like a, it, it is impressive that it did have a few moments like that amidst all the you know uh, fairly uh, weighty subject matter. Um, but yeah, just, uh, music aside, any other final thoughts you want to leave us with on Tick, Tick, Boom before we wrap it up, John? I'm very curious to see how many people actually see this because it didn't well, seem like- you're, when you're, it was, you're, you're never going to know. It's Netflix. Well, I mean more in terms of just like cultural, like are people and discussing word of mouth. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the thing was when this came out on Friday, I was looking on, like, I think I, was, I watched it Friday night. And I was looking and I couldn't, like, I had to search for Tick, Tick, Boom. It like, wasn't anywhere on the homepage. And now it's come up a little bit into like popular. It's, 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 it was seven on the top 10 when I watched it yesterday. For okay. That's good. Cause it wasn't, I did not notice that at least on Friday. So at least it's popping up, but I'm very curious. Cause like, this is the kind of thing that like, if this came out in theaters, no one would see this. And so it's almost one of those unique gems where like, by being on Netflix, it's not exposing it, but also it is like, is a like important property in a way that like we saw like the Lin-Manuel Miranda name doesn't go as far as we thought we saw how In the Heights did and well, so now, well now it's out of the top 10 actually and uh Vanessa Hudgens uh, might have been partially responsible for kicking it out because the Princess Switch 3 Romancing the Star is uh now number seven where yesterday it was tick tick boom <laughs> oh, Vanessa Hudgens too many too many Netflix things um but yeah so I'm just very curious to see like do people actually see this? And like the other thing about this that I just don't have a sense of is like, do people take it seriously? Because I do think, I think what Garfield's doing here is extraordinary. Um, And I think it's the kind of thing where like, I think it is very over the top. And so I do think it's something that like awards voters like, but I also think just in general, I think it works. And I think it works in a way that a lot of these performances don't. And so I would love to see people actually take it seriously, but we'll see if that happens. Yeah, for whatever it's worth, I feel like on a few of the Oscar picks and things, it seems like he's in 
fairly good shape. You know, hard hard to say about the movie with respect to Best Picture because like there's still some stuff yet to come out. But you know, it'd be interesting if he got nominated for an Oscar for it. So you yeah. know, I don't um, see this getting Best Picture. I think that's I, I don't think that's going to happen. As much as I think it's actually a really good movie, I I it seems it's just, it's just a little too unconventional. Yeah, I I, yeah. I just think it's too unconventional for a lot of the voters to maybe wrap their minds around. Yeah, though we really don't know what the ten is going to do instead of the 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 fluctuating. You have to be a top like percent thing. So yeah. we'll see. Yep. Yeah, so I've, um, oh, geez, way too much of award season left for, for my sanity, but, uh, and <laughs> I'm happy to watch all those movies. I mean, more so as far as me, uh, actually finding the time to edit all of these podcasts. Um, yeah. before we get out of here, if you want to find me on social media, I'm Josh Chernovoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y. Uh, it's the same thing on Twitter. The podcast email is the rewindmoviepod at gmail.com. Podcast Twitter is at rewindmoviepod. John, is there anywhere that you can, the people can find you on social media that you would like to direct them to? Yes. So both on Letterboxd and on Twitter, uh, I am at J-L Police, my last name, P-U-L-I-C-E. Um, so you can find me there. And yeah, and I would just say like, I, this is like, we obviously talked about Boy State, which was a really good documentary, but like I wholeheartedly, if anyone's gotten this far, this podcast and hasn't already watched it, I would strongly recommend it. I think it's a really great movie. Yeah, we we both recommend Tick, Tick, Boom, which I, I think that says a lot that we were both there because, you know, I think it was in theory, while, you know, someone like John that has that history of it could have been just, you know, just been more more critical and found a lot more to nitpick with. He obviously really liked it. And me, someone that could have just been overwhelmed by just, you know, just how weird of a project this was in the first place. And I don't really know musicals that well. I could have easily just like gone in and just like given up and it might've been just been like too, too much, like, you know, trying to, you know, speak Greek or something like that. And it, it wasn't, it was, you know, I, I found ways to connect with it. And I think, you know, don't tell someone not to watch it just because they're not a Broadway person. If you're anyone that has ever just like, you know, like question, Hey, are you running out of time in life to do what you love? I think you're going to find something to hold on to in this movie. So yeah, uh, well, I, that about wraps it up for this one. I want to thank John for being so generous with his time and lending his expertise. Uh, thanks to everyone for listening. Coming up next, uh, I'll probably have a podcast on uh, King Richard and maybe one on Bergman Island and, uh, and who knows, like as John and I just mentioned, Got a lot of awards season left. So uh, thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to John for joining and we'll see you next time.